Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, May 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... An NAACP lawsuit alleges Mississippi discriminated against black and low-income people in its COVID response. Then we talk with writer Zhang Tingwei Zhang, or rather Jenny Tingwei Zhang, ahead of her appearance in Oxford tonight. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The team with the best players wins. That's Governor Tate Reeves channeling former General Electric CEO Jack Welch. Yesterday, the governor announced the appointment of Charles Haynes to lead the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation. Haynes currently works at MBI and was previously a state trooper. He takes over the top job in the wake of a shooting at the state fairgrounds that left one alleged assailant dead and some eight people injured. Governor Reeves says current levels of violent crime in Mississippi are unsustainable and unacceptable. Mississippi families deserve to feel safe walking around their neighborhoods. They deserve to feel comfortable in their homes. And they deserve to feel confident that they can travel and gather safely in their capital city. We refuse to accept this crime wave as the norm in our state. The governor also announced Bo Lucky as the new chief of the Capitol Police Force, which patrols around the state government buildings in downtown Jackson. Coming up, an NAACP lawsuit alleges Mississippi discriminated against black and low-income people in its COVID response. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. It's been over a year since the first COVID-19 vaccine was approved for emergency use. The vaccine rollout had a bumpy start, but the NAACP in a new lawsuit against the Mississippi Department of Health says low-income communities of color were actively left out in the beginning. Shalina Chatlani, healthcare reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, has been following this story. She joins us now. Shalina, tell us about this complaint. Well, on March 30th, the Southern Poverty Law Center via the NAACP filed an administrative complaint saying that the Mississippi Department of Health essentially, you know, wasn't equitable when it chose how to spend federal COVID-19 pandemic relief money. So the NAACP alleges that Mississippi health officials didn't develop a plan that would make vaccine access, you know, equitable for communities of color that were already hit hard by the pandemic. The group said that they essentially had to fill that void in order to protect those communities. I spoke to one of the lead attorneys at the SPLC 
on this case, Keisha Stokes Huff. We know that the state of Mississippi received billions of dollars in federal COVID aid to make sure that people all across the state were vaccinated. And where did those billions of dollars go? We hope that the government's investigators will have the resources to track down exactly what occurred and why it occurred. And it wasn't just vaccines. They said it was hard for low-income communities of color to get access to protective equipment like masks and hand sanitizer. Now, this is something you followed as the vaccine was first rolling out. And it was even cited as evidence in the briefing alongside the work of other Mississippi journalists, right? Yeah, that's right. Back in early 2021, I had been reporting on how lots of states across the South had failed to put vaccine um, in underserved communities. And we actually broke a story with NPR about how in East Baton Rouge, there were almost no vaccine sites and the majority were in wealthy white areas. Similarly, in Jackson, Mississippi, you might remember wealthy white suburbs got vaccine before Jackson did, which is the capital and is majority black. We saw something similar in Mobile County, Alabama. So later that year in April, I had heard that it wasn't just the sites that were missing. It was also that health departments were failing to utilize federally qualified health centers, which have historically served low-income populations on Medicaid or the uninsured. So I went to the Delta Health Center, which is one of the oldest FQHCs in the nation, alongside its twin in Boston. And even they, with their track record of success, struggled to get vaccine from the health department. I was able to talk to John Fairman, the CEO of Delta Health Center, um, earlier this week to hear his reaction to the lawsuit. We kept trying to get vaccines so that we could offer them. We were getting hundreds of calls. The vaccines went to um, areas that were not as disproportionately affected. And so by nature, by, as, a fall, as a result of that, you're obviously not having the biggest bang for the buck in the quickest fashion. So I would call and text Dr. Dobbs every day. So Dr. Dobbs is the state health officer who's retiring from that post soon. So what happened after that? Well, Fairman kept trying and trying to get vaccine. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, healthcare providers that did have logistical challenges. Like a lot of the vaccine did need to be refrigerated in the beginning. But, you know, even as that became less and less of a requirement, these health centers still had some trouble gaining that. And, you know, Fairman said he was texting Dr. Dobbs a lot to try to get the vaccine. And eventually they did. And I reported that they were able to get lots of vaccine out to those low-income communities of color, kind of showing that the hesitancy that we thought we were seeing in the Black community, a lot of that was, you know, an access issue. I do recall that there, you had both of those going on at the same time, hesitancy and access. How is the health department responding? What are they saying? Well, I emailed the health department, and here's what they wrote. They said... The Mississippi State Department of Health continues its long-standing commitment to health equity, especially in Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities that have been historically deprived of health and prosperity. So, you know, they say that they're committed to serving these communities, and they also tout a relatively high vaccination rate among Black residents in Mississippi. The Delta Health CEO, how is he responding to this, Mr. Fairman? 
Well, Fairman says the work isn't over. There are still lots of inequities surrounding COVID-19 in the South. I think the issue is to continue to educate. We've made it a big thing to invite members of the clergy and whoever they decide to bring with them so that we do educational sessions. We are um, constantly reaching out to the media, the print media, as well as the television and so on. He also says the health center is investing in resources like mobile health units that can meet vulnerable people where they are. Well, the pandemic is still with us. It's not going away. We're hearing in Mississippi the numbers are ticking up, even though hospital rates haven't increased. What does this mean for future policy moving forward? Well, it's definitely a weird time. We're right on the cusp of, you know, having one million COVID-19 related deaths in the nation. The South was hit particularly hard. And, you know, right now life is going on. We are still starting to see an uptick in cases in the North. And we just had Jazz Fest in New Orleans. So it's time to start thinking about how we make sure cases stay level. That might mean masking, limiting big groups. And now with the increased attention on equity, it also means taking extra steps to vaccinate those populations that are still holding out, especially in those hard-to-reach communities. Shalina Chatlani covers health care for the Gulf States Newsroom. It's a collaboration among public media stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Still ahead, we talk with writer Jenny Ting Wei Chong, ahead of her appearance in Oxford tonight. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Writer Jenny Tingwei Chong will appear on the Thacker Mountain Radio Hour tonight in Oxford. She's the author of the novel Four Treasures of the Sky, which explores a young Chinese-American woman's experience in the Chinese Exclusion Act era in the Western U.S. Chong tells us the novel marks a milestone in her career. It is my first book and uh, first work of fiction in a while, yeah. This story deals with prejudice, discrimination, racial hatred in the 1800s. Did you have to do a lot of research about how Americans responded to Asians that immigrated to the country? I did. I did a lot of research for this book in general. Um, you know, I I had this small idea of what the Chinese Exclusion Act was, and it wasn't something that I had grown up learning about. You know, I moved to the United States when I was five, so pretty much all of my K through 12 and beyond education has been in the States. Um so I remember in my history classes, you know, we learned so much about everything, but I don't ever recall learning about the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was something I encountered in, I think, the last semester of my undergrad when I specifically sought out an Asian American studies class. So, 
you know, going into this book, I had a small inkling of the Chinese Exclusion Act, but I didn't know just how far flung it was and how much came before it and continued on after it, you know. Um, So as far as research goes, I started with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it kind of became this whole thing of looking at instances of violence and uh, anti-Chinese sentiment across the West and the Pacific Northwest, as well as looking at experiences of Chinese immigrants in, you know, places that currently feel like they, they don't have a lot of Chinese people there. But once upon a time, they did exist there. And that was, that was the bulk of the research that I did. I don't want to give the book away, but your main character goes through some sad and horrific situations. What were you trying to get across as you move this character through first being in China, then coming to America, and then having to morph and become this other person to deal with the situations that she found herself in? Yeah, one of the main things for me in uh, creating the character, the main character, her name is Dai was representing the real experiences of um, especially, especially Chinese girls that were coming over to the States at that time. Um, you know, this was around the time of the Exclusion Act, but the thing that preceded it was the Page Act, which um, was actually the first piece of legislation that um, got to banning Chinese immigration. It was specifically more towards women. Um, so at that time, it was it was nearly impossible for Chinese girls and women to get across. So what they did was they would smuggle them in buckets of coal or crates of China and ship these girls over across the ocean where they'd end up in brothels um, in, in the ports of San Francisco to be moved to brothels in San Francisco's Chinatown. I wanted to bring that piece of history to light because, you know, anytime someone talks about it now, they're also so astonished and shocked that this could happen. Um, I think we forget that these were things that people were going through at the time. So um, one of the things I, I definitely wanted to capture in moving my main character through, you know, everything that she goes through was to uh, recall everything that did happen to these young women um, as they made these horrific journeys across the ocean. As you wrote about this character, had you already formulated what they would go through, or did you find yourself, as you wrote, creating situations that she would experience or encounter? You know, it was a little bit of both. I had several outlines for this book, but I found, you know, as I was writing it and as these characters were growing kind of on their own, that the outline would keep changing. And so I ultimately had maybe three or four large moments that I knew I wanted to happen. Um, And I kind of let go of this hard and fast belief in, in the exact path that she had to take. So in the end, it was a mixture of both. It was, you know, I kind of let, 
my characters guide me towards the ending, which I already knew what the ending was going to be when I started writing the book. But I also try to, you know, make sure I hit these three or four major moments as well. The experiences that the character had, the racial animus that she experienced, some people would argue it's still going on today uh, with the pandemic and blaming Chinese folks for um, COVID-19 and the attacks on them that have occurred. So there's a parallel going on here between the past and the present. Yeah, certainly. And I, you know, I've said this before um, when talking about this this book in relation to, to today, but I think we should also remember, you know, looking at the history that what we're experiencing now definitely isn't new and it's not in a vacuum and it didn't just happen. It can be traced back all the way to, you know, the 1850s, the 1840s when Chinese people like first came to this country. Um, it, it has such a long and storied and complicated history um, that I think, you know, looking at the history that's partially captured in this book, certainly my book is not the only reference point for this. I think we can begin to understand why what's happening today is happening. I did read some of the comments online about um, your book, people who had read it. And one thing that did come across is that, as you said earlier, a lot of people weren't aware of some of the things that uh, Chinese Americans have been through and what happened to Chinese immigrants those many years ago. Uh, So it was eye-opening for them. And they also expressed that sense of sorrow and and sadness for some of your characters and their life's outcome. Are there particular writers that influence you or that have helped shape how you write? Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, Toni Morrison is a big one. Um, I love, I just love her writing so much. Um Alexander Chi was also a big influence for me, especially when I was writing this book. I basically kept his first novel, Edinburgh, on my writing desk and kind of read a few pages out of it every day before I wrote just to get into this headspace of, you know, let's make language beautiful and let's make something beautiful. Yeah, um, I would say those two um, have probably influenced my writing the most as of now. Jenny Tingwei Chong will appear on the Thacker Mountain Radio Hour tonight at 6 p.m. in Oxford. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's AutoCorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning. Morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. It's going to be a hot one, but enjoy the day. Try and stay cool.